Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Ted Bendel shares from Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16, the 19th part of the series, The Household of God. And now, here's Ted. Well, thank you, worship team. Um, just great to worship our, our Lord and our God. If you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Titus chapter 1. You'll find this on page 1857 if you happen to be using one of the uh, brown Bibles. Before we get into our scripture, let's take some time to pray. Father, it is a, a huge privilege that you've given to us. Not only to enter your presence, but to open your word. To hear your word to us. And Lord, I ask that you would help me to speak clearly, uh, to express the content of your word here in this passage. Father, that you may have the honor and the glory that all that we do here, every word that is spoken, might bring you praise because of what you have done in Jesus. And in His name, we give you our thanks. Amen. So, Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. Now, you all know the story of Little Red Riding Hood. You remember when she went to visit Grandma? The big bad wolf knew she was coming, so he got rid of Grandma and disguised himself to look a bit like Grandma in bed. Little Red Riding Hood may have suspected that something was out of order, but she couldn't quite get her head around it. So she kept inching closer, commenting, My, what big eyes you have, Grandma! The better to see you, my dear, replied the wolf. My, what big ears you have, Grandma! The better to hear you, my dear. Funny Little Red Riding Hood said, my, what big teeth you have, Grandma! To which the wolf replied, The better to eat you with, my dear. And he leapt out of bed to grab her, and Little Red Riding Hood barely escaped with her life. Now, the moral of the story is that without discernment, you put yourself in serious jeopardy. Discernment will keep you from flirting dangerously with enemies who want to destroy you. And many Christians need to take to heart that lesson from Little Red Riding Hood because there are lots of wolves around in sheep's clothing that want to prey on God's flock. And some are masters of deception and disguise. They talk like Christians. They use the Bible. They seem like nice people. 
And they're so loving. They'll draw you in and have you for lunch. And we've all encountered these. Some of them at our own doors. It was a situation like this to which Titus was called to minister the gospel following in the footsteps of Paul. His specific ministry was very much like Timothy's. He was to appoint elders and to see that they were adequately trained to confront the deceptions that were common in Crete at that time. Now, eldership was a common feature in many ancient communities. Um, Some of you who were part of our Bible study have heard me wonder, how did Moses manage to speak to a million people or so? Now, this is without the day, you know, well before Facebook, well before Internet, without even a PA system. How do you speak to a million people? When Moses went, first went back to Egypt, now with God's sovereign commission in hand, he was instructed to tell all Israel that their deliverance was at hand. How do you do it? Remember, you know, they're not all gathered in one big auditorium. They're scattered all over the country. Well, the answer was God-given. God said, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me. And then God said, you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. See, even before there was any formal government for Israel, there were the elders. Now, these elders were no doubt the patriarchs of the various families. But the work of the elders persisted for many, many centuries right up to the New Testament times. And I don't know about you, but I've read this passage many times and it never registered. uh, In Luke 9, for example, you read, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by whom? By the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and then on the third day be raised. And again in Acts 6, you remember the story of of Stephen's martyrdom. Uh, After the resurrection, and because Stephen was preaching uh, to the the men, uh, to the the synagogue of freedmen, um, the men of that synagogue stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came to to Stephen and seized him and brought him before the council. The office of elder 
whether formal or informal, whether appointed or hereditary, was a feature also among many other cultures, including those of ancient Greece and Africa, and I think the Aboriginal peoples of North and South America as well. Now, the, the Christian faith has always been countercultural in terms of shining the light of God's truth into a world of darkness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our culture in the 21st century is in many ways not that much different from that of 1st century Rome or Asia Minor when it comes to this contrast between truth and falsehood. Of course, the challenge to truth started in the garden. Did God actually say? And you remember when Jesus was before Pilate. Pilate asked his famous question. What is truth? Truth has always been questioned or challenged or made relative by people who want to justify their own way as opposed to God's way, by those who want their own agenda to be accepted and received by others instead of submitting and obeying God's will as He reveals it in His Word. And, you know, really we should expect this from a culture, from our culture and the world around us. But as Christians... We believe that God has raised up His church to counter this cultural falsehood and to stand for the truth. The church is called to receive God's truth in His Word, to teach God's truth to people, to speak God's truth to our culture, to guard guards God's truth from a culture that wants to undermine and destroy it. Paul's mandate and challenge as he planted churches and trained elders like Timothy and Titus to um, train leaders rather to to help the churches run themselves. His challenge and mandate was to make sure that the church, God's church, fulfills this high calling through Jesus Christ to be for the truth and against falsehood. We have the same calling here. And our passage this morning, we're going to see some of the principles that God has given us to accomplish it and uh, to help us avoid the big bad wolf. So Titus chapter 1 and verse nine, uh, 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy truth word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. 
the office of elder takes on a whole new flavor in the church. Here the role of the elder is not so much judicial, although at times that might be included, but primarily involves teaching in both formal and informal venues and in taking care of the flock and all that that entails. And so to accomplish that, the man who occupies the office needs to be a living example, an object lesson, as it were, to the faithfulness uh, and uh, of what faithfulness to the Lord Jesus and his word looks like. Now, back in November, my brother Steve Asawa gave us a detailed exposition both of the office and of the qualifications for filling it from 1 Timothy 3. So I'm not going to go over that ground in detail today. If you weren't here or if you can't remember, um, I commend that you review his message. It's on our website. And uh, you can refresh your memory on those matters. Paul instructs Titus here to pursue what must have been a daunting task. Among a people with a reputation even more soiled than the people of Corinth, Titus is to look for Christians of outstanding moral character. Men who are above reproach and to avoid such sins as drunkenness and greed and violence. He's to look for men who must be self-controlled, disciplined, holy, lovers of good and hospitable. But even more than being of outstanding moral character, the man chosen to serve as an elder must be confident in the Word of God so that he can reason and encourage with those within the church and rebuke those outside who try to contradict it. They need to be able, as Peter put it, to, in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, and yet to do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, that was Peter's instruction to the whole church. So the elder's job, as I understand it, is to be first and foremost a model for the rest of us um, of what Christian maturity looks like. Now, our elders are imperfect but redeemed men. And for our part, we are to imitate them as they imitate Christ Jesus. But the situation in Crete was pretty tough. Look at verse 10. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. 
They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Crete was a hotbed, not only of immorality, but of false teaching. But when you stop and think about it, the two tend to go together. Um, because false teachings always cater to our base desires and our pride. For example, I don't think there's one of us who wouldn't like a few more dollars in our pockets. And a teaching that feeds our temptation to greed and covetousness may, if it's packaged correctly, easily get past our personal and theological filters. Just think prosperity gospel and how many have been trapped there. Paul describes those who oppose the gospel as insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Folk like this are to be expected in society at large. The problem that Titus faced is that many of them were inside the church. The insubordinate or undisciplined folk are those who refuse to accept the authority of the Bible. They may acknowledge the Bible as the Word of God, but they don't let it change them. The Scriptures and the Holy Spirit who inspired them are safely kept at arm's length. But as a consequence of their insubordination, they become empty talkers. They have nothing to say, but they say it well. Rhetoric and reason don't necessarily go together. And just listen to some of our politicians. The Greek word translated here as empty is often translated vain or profitless. The point being that whatever these people tried to say had no power to change a person for the better. In fact, these people are deceived and become deceivers themselves. They believe their own press and lead others away from the truth. And what's more, they were doing it for personal gain. In Crete, the most pressing issue from these deceivers was the attempt to bring Gentiles under the umbrella of Judaism. The contention, the question that the early church had to face over and over again was, can a Gentile be brought into a living relationship with the living God merely by trusting Christ Jesus? Or does a Gentile convert have to become a Jew and follow all the Jewish rituals as well? Now that question was resolved in Acts 15, a few years after Saul's conversion but it had to be addressed repeatedly in the years that followed. As an interesting side note, if you read Acts 15, you discover that Titus was there. 
with Paul at that Jerusalem conference. And now he has the responsibility to answer the question again. And the result of these false teachings was that whole families were being upset. So the elders were charged with the responsibility of, as it were, vaccinating the people with the truth so that the gospel's transformative effects could be seen in the lives of many people. Now I find, I don't know if you noticed, but sometimes Paul has a very sharp pen. Um, he wrote to the Galatians, for example, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And here he states bluntly that the false teachers must be silenced. The problem is that we can't change people's opinions by enforcing silence. That's a typical approach of, that's used by tyrants. True silencing has to come through changing their minds. That is, through repentance by means of corrective teaching. And again, Paul's sharp pen ran away from him as he wrote um, verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, Lazy gluttons. And then he says, and this testimony is true. I invite you to look at the logic here. If a Cretan says that Cretans are always liars, is he lying? (laughs) Uh, Which would mean that Cretans are in fact truth tellers. But then the speaker is lying about them. So all the Cretans cannot be truth tellers because they're liars. And I don't know if you've come across this little object lesson. You can't read it from there, I know. It says, the statement on the other side of this card is false. Okay? But the statement on the other side of this card says it's true. And get your head around that one. If you can resolve that one, let me know. And the truth is that that Cretans did have this reputation for being drunken, insolent, untrustworthy, lying, gluttonous people. And to the point where the, the Greeks made a verb out of the name. So it translated into English becomes to cretize, meaning to lie and to cheat. And they had a proverbial phrase to cretize against a Cretan meant to match lies with lies, as diamond cuts diamond. To match lies with lies. Into this atmosphere, Titus was called to appoint elders in the church. You see, he's got a huge job ahead of him. And they in turn, these elders were in turn called to rebuke them, that is, 
the many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, to rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Given the reputation of Cretans, though, you could almost have expected to read Paul's instruction that followed as, well, since these people are incorrigible, just leave them alone. They're not worth the trouble. But interestingly, hope is extended. That's why the elders were being appointed. Yes, there's going to be some hard work involved. But God who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead is well able to handle it. Rebuke them sharply. Why? That they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. It's interesting that There were churches there in Crete. Apparently a church in every town, or nearly every town, in Crete. And the fact that there were churches there testifies to the mercy and the grace of our God. He is not surprised or daunted by our innate sinfulness. And He just never gives up. Verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Wow, what a condemnation. Jesus had something similar to say, though. He said, From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these come from within. And they defile a person. The defiled and unbelieving, well, they see evil where there is none. You know, the person who sees a double entendre when there wasn't one intended, just a simple statement. Their unclean mind taints everything they think about. But clearly, if our hearts are renewed by the Holy Spirit, by His transforming power, those things need not be so. Jesus said in another place, Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. If our hearts are pure, then everything will seem clean and pure and bright and we'll know the difference. And that contrast is bold and the consequences are dramatic. The person who has not been cleansed, who has not received the mercy of God and His grace, can go through the motions, 
They can sound like a Christian. But you will recognize them by their fruit. Their lives will ultimately reveal the state of their relationship with the Lord Jesus. And they will simply be unfit for any type of good work. Paul's words and descriptions in this passage seem harsh and unyielding. But reality and truth is sometimes unpleasant. Which is why some people refuse medical help. I had a friend and colleague who once said that he would rather see the undertaker than a doctor. And guess what? He saw the undertaker about two weeks later. The very fact that Paul is writing to Titus about such people as this. The fact that he is urging Titus to find and appoint elders and to teach them to teach others the truth of the gospel should give us hope. Even we can be brought to Jesus to receive from him mercy and grace and to have our hearts and attitudes and minds cleansed. However black our hearts might be today, Jesus is well able to cleanse us, to bring us to the Father. And all that He asks of us is that we give Him the opportunity to work in us according to His amazing mercy and grace. He's done it all. And He's done it for you. His death on the cross His victorious resurrection. That was in your place. So I ask you, urge you, just invite Him in. Allow Him to do His amazing work in you. And if you would have that start in your life, invite you to Come over to this room next to me here and we'll, we'll talk with you and pray with you. Father, we do thank you. Thank you for your grace that has spoken to us. Thank you for your word, for that word of truth, uncomfortable as it might be. Lord, We ask that you would help us, help us who claim to know you to live exemplary lives so that others also may be drawn to you. For those who don't, Lord, that you would work in their hearts and in their lives to draw them to yourself. And we give you our thanks and our praise in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.